0: So, as you're turning there in chapter 9, he asks you, does it bother you with the bad guys? Win? When? Right? In, in a movie, in a, in a book that you're reading, or just in real life? I remember the movie, and I'm not recommending the movie, I just remember the movie uh, Primal Fear from probably 20 years ago with Richard Gere and Edward Norton. That movie got me big time, right? I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. And if you haven't seen it, then I'm going to ruin it for you because the bad guy wins in in epic fashion, right? The wrong and the evil that Edward Norton's character uh, does goes unpunished. He gets away with it. There is no justice. And I remember vividly, a horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach because of it. That it just violated me. It wasn't right. Right? That does not sit well with us when the bad guys win. When wrong isn't paid for and especially when good things happen to those who've done wrong. And I thought a lot about that this week as it pertains to chapter 9 in Joshua. The Gibeonite deception is how the ESV titles this chapter. See, the Gibeonites have long been God's enemies, and they do wrong in our passage today. They deceive God's people, and they come out pretty good in the end. And that's a struggle. What do we do with that? But before we get into the chapter, let me set the stage a little bit for you. Remind you of where we've been in the book of Joshua. We've been seeing God fulfill his promise. He's promised his people a land. And we've seen in Joshua the the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise as God's people cross the Jordan into the land and begin city by city to take possession of it. And they've been given some pretty specific instructions along the way about how this is supposed to happen, right? And so this is some of where I was going back to Exodus this week. Um, Exodus 34 uh, has some of these instructions about what they're supposed to do. There we go. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Pretty clear instructions. They get reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, and those same nations get mentioned again, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when in the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So, any guesses as to how Israel's going to blow it this week? We get a few more details in Deuteronomy 20. I didn't put this up on the screen for you. I don't want you to turn there because it, the, the passage is rather lengthy. But here's the instructions that they were given in Deuteronomy 20. God makes a distinction between people who are inside the promised land that they're going to occupy and people that are outside the promised land. God said for people who are outside the promised land, the area that you're not going to occupy, it's fine to make treaties with them. Right? Make a treaty of peace with them. Make a covenant with them. If they agree to it, then they'll be your servants and that'll be okay. But inside the area that you're to occupy, inside the promised land, no such treaties are allowed. Right? You've got to devote those peoples to destruction or else they will infiltrate. They will corrupt you. You'll pick up their pagan practices. You'll worship their gods. It won't be a good thing. So God makes the distinction between those who are inside the promised land and for those who are outside the promised land, those who are far away from a distant country. This is going to come into play when we get into chapter 9. So uh, if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read the first half to get us started. So this is God's word. Joshua 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. And and Hivites and and Gibeonites get used interchangeably here. But the men of Israel said to them, "'Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you?' They said to Joshua, "'We are your servants.' And Joshua said to them, "'Who are you and where do you come from?' They said to him, "'From a very distant country your servants have come "'because of the name of the Lord your God. "'For we have heard a report of him "'and all that he did in Egypt.' And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from the houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. May God add his blessing to the teaching and to the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it through the ages. And that we have it today as a revelation of who you are and what you've done. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, would you be our helper? Would you be our guide? Would you who inspired these words be the one who illumines them for us, who lights them up so that we can understand them? And would you take them? And would you press them deep down into our hearts so that we might be changed by the very gospel that these words point to? We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So you guessed it, Israel went and did the exact thing that they had been told and warned not to do. Take care, the command said, that you don't make a covenant. And here in their carelessness, they've made their covenant. And as I wrestled my way through this chapter this week, really seeking the Lord, Lord, What benefit is this to us? Because sometimes, I'll just be honest, when we're going through Old Testament passages and narrative passages, sometimes it's difficult to see the usefulness in 2017 in Orangeburg, South Carolina. But it's there. I I really believe that it is. And so as, as I kept wrestling through this and seeking the Lord, I just kept seeing things about sin pop up again and again and again, right? Israel's sin, obviously, Gibeon's sin, God's response to the sin, its impact on their lives, its impact on our lives. And so that's basically what I'm sharing with you this morning is this list of kind of observations that I made through this chapter about sin and its effects, its impacts, how we ought to be thinking about it so I've got an outline for you in the worship folder if that's helpful to you. It's got four things on it and I want to give you the first two together because they really are both sides of the same coin. So here's the first thing that I that I saw from this passage. The likeliness of sin decreases when we seek the Lord, right? There's just a good principle to live by. I think that's solidly from Scripture. The likeliness of sin decreases when we seek the Lord, especially when we seek Him according to His Word and seek Him in His Word. So that's the first one. So here's the second one. Very similar. The likeliness of sin increases proportionally with self-reliance. As our self-reliance rises, so does the likeliness of sin we see both of these things pretty clearly in this passage. So the Gibeonites, they've got quite a ruse going, don't they? They're pretty crafty on their part. You've got to give it to them. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And they said, hey, we're as good as dead. So what do we have to lose? What can we do about this thing? And so I imagine, though it's not recorded in Scripture, I imagine one of the Gibeonites said, hey, I've got an idea, and it's so crazy, it just might work, right? And so their, their deception we see involves their provisions, their clothes, their shoes, made to look old, made to look like they had to journey from a long, long way away. Because remember I mentioned that provision in Deuteronomy 20 says, distant countries, it's okay to make covenants with them, but not if you're nearby and you're in the land that you're supposed to be dwelling, the promised land. Even the report that they give is crafty. They thought through a lot of these things. They don't say, hey, we heard about what you did in Jericho and Ai. They said, we heard about things that you did a long time ago in Egypt and with, with Og and Sihon, these kings, right? These things happened a long time ago, and if we were in a distant country, we would have had time to find out about them, right? Right? But if we had found out about these recent things that happened, that would betray the fact that, yeah, they're in their neck of the woods already. So it's a pretty good plan. But it doesn't go off without at least raising their suspicions. Verse 7, we see their suspicions are raised. They're thinking, hmm, this doesn't quite sound right. Perhaps you live among us. And then how are we supposed to make a covenant with you? And this would have been the ideal time for them to hit the pause button and say, hmm, what should we do here? Perhaps we should seek the Lord. Perhaps we should take care lest we make a covenant. But we already know from verse 14 that that didn't happen. And in a very direct indictment of Israel, it says they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And that's a problem because we know our God is very generous with giving wisdom, right? James, in, in his letter, spells this out beautifully for us, right? If we will but ask, if we will but confess our need of wisdom, he gives generously He doesn't despise that request. He honors that request. He gives generously. Oh, but friends, remember the likeliness of sin decreases when we seek the Lord, when we seek Him in His Word, but they didn't seek Him. Instead, what did they do? Look at the first part of verse 14. They took some of the provisions. Presumably, to inspect them, We think something fishy' is going on. We're going to get to the bottom of it. And so they take matters into their own hands, literally, some of the crumbly bread, some of the busted wineskins, as if to say, "We're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to figure out if this is really old or not. See if this is legit. Oh, but the likeliness of sin increases as self-reliance increases. See, our Father wants to help us. He wants to help us keep from sinning. What makes this even worse for Israel? What really exposes their self-reliance and they're failing to seek the Lord, is that when Israel was told that Joshua would be Moses' successor, God promised a special provision for Joshua. Numbers 27 tells us about that. Uh, So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Now listen carefully. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim. Remember the Urim and the Thummim? We still don't know what that is. Something akin to the casting of lots. Helps in decision making. Shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. You see, what makes this even worse for Israel is that God had given a very specific assistance that they could have taken advantage of in their decision-making. Joshua, go before Eleazar the priest. He'll use this weird stuff, whatever it is, and will help you know what you need to do. They had this resource that they didn't take advantage of. They said instead, oh, that's okay, God. We got this. Oh, beware. Oh, beware the the subtle unbelief of thinking we got this under control. They put their trust in their own understanding rather than in the Lord. And when self-reliance increases, so does sin. And so I'll ask you this morning, are you relying on your own strength? Are you relying on your own wisdom rather than the graces that God has given to you? The grace that he's given us in his word? The grace that he's given us in the body, in this community that we have together? Y'all, it's more than just for us to have some friends and some connections. It's that together we might keep one another from stumbling. That we might remind one another of God's word. That we might take care together to heed what he has told us. It's a gracious resource that's been given to all of us. But too often we rely on self rather than the graces that he's given to us. Uh, The third thing on your outline there. Sin can't be undone by more sin. Because the big question that a lot of people ask, that I was asking, y'all, if the Gibeonites got into this covenant, into this treaty by false pretenses, by lying, then why not just break the thing off? Why not just say, "Uh, you lied, clearly you are from here, and not from where you said, and this contract is null and void. It's been breached. Here's the loophole. We're out of it. Why don't they do that? Some of the Israelites really wanted them to do that. They were not happy. They were murmuring again, which is an echo of what they did in the wilderness. So why not break it off? Verse 19 and 20 tells us, But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord. God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Alright, so Israel may have done wrongly making this covenant under these false pretenses, but the fact of the matter is they swore an oath which then meant a lot more than it means today. They gave their word and they swore by the name of the Lord. And so now his glory is at stake. And now their honor as the people of God is at stake. And rather than heaping another wrong on top of the wrong that was already done, they need to try to live as faithfully as possible in the mess that they've made. God takes this oath seriously. And just to help you connect a few more dots uh, that we'll get to eventually, 2 Samuel 21, uh, you can look that up sometime later, Saul would go on and kill some Gibeonites later. And God brings a famine on the land because of it. God takes this oath seriously. And sin cannot be undone by more sin you know the biggest example i could think of in this the way that it might apply to some of us is in marriage And this principle of sin can't be undone by heaping more sin on top of it you ever heard someone say oh if i only knew then what i knew what i know now never would have married him never would have married Oh, if only I knew then what I know now. So maybe you sinned in marrying who you did. Maybe it was ill-advised and you became unequally yoked, as Paul describes it. And now you're paying for your choice. The very real temptation is to add the sin of divorce on top of the sin of your becoming unequally yoked. But marriage is a covenant. Marriage is swearing an oath. And without a biblical basis for ending that covenant that the Bible gives us, such as adultery, such as abandonment, it's a covenant that's not to be broken. And so instead, by God's grace, some of you will need to seek to live as faithfully as you possibly can in the mess that you've made. You can't undo one sin by heaping another mistake on top of it. Got a little bit more to say about that, but it's in this fourth point. Sin doesn't get the last word. Sin doesn't get the last word. Because God is gracious and He's in control. Those are two truths that we need to cling to. He's gracious, He is for our good, He is a giver of good gifts to His children. That's who He is. And He's in control. This is the part, hanging on to these two things will help us when we are tempted to heap another sin on top of a sin to try to get out of the mess that we've made. If we could just hang on to these two things, he's gracious, he's for my good, and he's in control. If we can hang on to those two things, we can stop and we can say, okay, I've blown it again but that doesn't surprise God that hasn't thrown a wrench in his plans he's still God he's still on his throne he's still in control and he's still working things for my good even in the midst of this mess that I find myself in I can trust that I can trust him That God can take even our sin and use it for his own purposes. Use it for our good. Y'all, that is a great theme throughout the scriptures. That God is gracious and that he's in control. That he can take even human sinfulness and make good come from it. Jacob deceitfully received Isaac's blessing. Joseph, despite the sinfulness of his brothers, is blessed and used of the Lord. And even these Gibeonites, deceivers that they are, receive the blessing and grace of God. Now, it's not without its consequences, right? They live under a curse. They are servants for the rest of their days. But they do live after all. And if these were my two choices, I think that I would take being a servant as opposed to being devoted to destruction. But you got to notice, too, graciousness even in this curse. Even in the consequences for their deception. Y'all, there's grace. There's huge. There's great grace here. God's blessing abounds. Because what was their service? To what task were they perpetually assigned? Look at verse 27 at the end of the passage. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So where does God have them do their time? In the house of God among the worshiping community at the altar witnessing day after day after day the sacrifices of God these animals being slain their blood being spilt for the atonement of sin these pleasing aromas going up before the Lord God took their sin of deception and even in His curse the consequences for their sin And he displays grace. And apparently being in God's house day after day, witnessing what they witnessed had an impact. Because more than a thousand years later, Nehemiah writes. And in two different lists in the book of Nehemiah, he lists Gibeonites among the people of God. Never rebelled never broke the covenant that they entered into under false pretenses. Apparently, much like Rahab was, they were assimilated into the people of God because of his graciousness. So when it comes to the Gibeonites, the bad guys win. The bad guys win, and they win In this instance, because God is able to take even our sin and make good come from it and his glory come from it. Now, we of course can't presume upon this. It would be dangerous, it would be deadly to presume upon this and to use this as an excuse to, well, let's just keep on sinning because God will make good out of it in the end. We can't presume upon that because the reality is that unrepentant sin leads to hardness of heart. And all that you have to do is look at back at the very first two verses in this chapter and see peoples whose hearts had been hardened beyond softening. These peoples who they heard what the Lord had done and said, we're going to make a coalition and we're going to fight. Right? so it it hardened their hearts and it made them stupid but for some reason and it must be the grace of God Gibeon didn't join in that coalition making, Gibeon said "Ooh, let's come up with another way let's get desperate and crazy and try something and see if it works and in God's grace it did They sought to make a covenant. And this is good news for us. This is really good news for us that the bad guys win. Because we are the bad guys. We're the bad guys. We stand in need of God's grace in the exact same way that the Gibeonites did. And we need to be so grateful. That God is in the business of taking rebels and enemies and making of them sons and daughters, causing the bad guys to win. Y'all, and the only way that this works, the only way that a holy God can do this, the only way that bad guys can win and we not have that sick feeling in the pit of our stomach like justice hasn't been served is that justice has been served. Just not on us, but on the Son. The only way God could show Israel mercy despite their waywardness, the only way God could show the Gibeonites mercy despite their deceitfulness, the only way we can receive mercy is the fact that our sin and rebellion have in fact been paid for. In full, justice has been served. And so the next time you come across something in a book or a movie or even in real life, and you say, Oh no, the bad guys are winning, just let it be a, a little simple reminder to you you're a bad guy and you've won but only because of Christ and Christ taking the fall for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a story in your word where the bad guys win. A story in your word where you display grace for sinful people. Another reminder of how you've shown us grace despite our sinfulness. Despite our self-reliance, despite our not seeking you when we ought, it's rich, rich grace that we could not ever deserve. We thank you for it. We pray that you would sink the reality of it deep down into our hearts. And for those of us who've never embraced the free offer of your grace, by the working of your Spirit, might today be the day. Pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.